Welcome to the Cockney Guide to Enlightenment podcast with me, Stephen Rosen. This is a place where we have deep conversations and find out what really makes people tick. I've been through a very deep journey in my own life from being a a nine-year-old in the early 70s selling stolen shoes down at Brick Lane to uh, a 22-year-old standing in a hotel room surrounded by drugs and bags of money uh, with uh, war in Lebanese militia. I have seen some interesting times in life and I changed all of that round and became a very successful businessman in the city of London and found that there was something missing. So this podcast is about going deeper underneath the surface of what we might think that we need in life. There's a rich uh, quality of life that we all can tap into and sometimes we have to just dig a bit deeper. So my story was lost in the Babylon. It's actually on Amazon now. I hope you enjoy this podcast. If you do, please uh, share it with your friends. Please subscribe or just follow. And you can connect with me at Cockney Profit on social media. Let us know what you think of it and enjoy this episode. For your convenience, this episode has been split into two parts. Both parts are released at the same time, so you can either listen to one later or you can go straight on and enjoy the rest of the conversation after this. Thanks. Welcome to the Cockney Guide to Enlightenment podcast with me, Stephen Rosen. And today, as a guest, I've got Harry Harris, who's a very old friend of mine. We go back a very long way. And Harry is, uh, at the moment, is a psychotherapist. Harry, is that right? Yep, that's right, psychotherapist, and we do go back a long way. Yeah, we go back a very long way. So thanks for joining me, Harry, today. It's really brilliant to, to see you, and, you know, we've we've probably had a podcast before this, <laughs> chatting, and uh, I said to you, like, let's save some for the, for the recording, because there's so much to talk about. Yeah. And, and once you get talking about subjects, the sort of subjects that we've we're looking into, you know, the stuff around my book and, and your work. And I just want to, you know, just give people an idea of where you come from your kind of journey, because I know, you know, you've been a black cab driver in, in London. You've been a, a TV presenter on, on the History Channel. And, and I really enjoyed that sort of stuff. And now you're a psychotherapist. So, you know, a kid from, from uh, Bethnal Green and, and who went to Dainford like me, you know, it's like, it's a it's a, a very sort of unusual path to sort of to travel down, so maybe you know just kind of let us know where you come from. You know what what kind of motivated you into, into the black cab sort of world, and then from there. Yeah, well, thanks, Steve. And you know when you asked me to come up and do the podcast, you know I didn't hesitate to say yeah, I'd love to do that. And I think it was partly for reading your book and just thinking about the importance of telling our stories and being able to have conversations. You know, sometimes I think about where I come from, but I'm just living my life. So we don't often have time to, you know, unless unless you do write a book. And I've not done that. And you just said to me, you know, you should write your story. And it is something I think about. But anyway, we might get onto that. But, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm happy to talk about most things in my life. I don't think there's anything that I necessarily consciously hide or or don't talk about but of course you know not everything is is for public consumption no um no. but I'm, I'm i'm gonna try and be as open as possible so well to to go back to dankford 
you know, I, I really liked being at school. Uh, and, you know, I can remember certain things and certain people who who made an impression on me at that time, you know, you being one of them, some other people. Who are, well, I still see occasionally, you know, a lot of them sadly are dead. You know, that, yeah. was, that was part of that time that we were living in and, you know, drink and drugs and crime and all of that. And, you know, when I actually to go back just to stick with my work career, because as you said, I'm a psychotherapist now. But I left school a year early. I didn't do no fifth year at Dainford. And that was to work in the print. And at that time... I vaguely remember that now. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. At, at, at that time, you know, the print in like, the East End was quite a good trade. It was like, yeah, it was like, you know, you, you've got your ticket there once you're in there. Yeah, but what happened was I had no really idea what I wanted to do. Um, but my, my dad was out with some friends or some, you know, acquaintances one night and we was at this boxing match. And then he said to me the next day, you know, there's a job going at the print with, with this guy who he knew. Do you want to do it? And, I, you know, I, I can't even really remember having a conversation about it. But what, what this guy printed was top shelf books. And being a 15 year old kid, you know, even that I was just like, oh, yeah, well, that sounds sort of a bit edgy or whatever. And they all seem to have, you know, quite a extravagant lifestyle. And I just said, yeah. And. I did, I, you know, I wasn't even really thinking about education, but I did like school. And then I, the, the, the decision was made that I was going to leave and go on because the opportunity to, to work in the print. And I can remember going to the headmaster's office. I don't know if it was my mum or my dad and having a conversation. And he said, we can't stop you leaving. But is it what you want, what you want to do? Something like that. And I just... Who was, who was the headmaster, Mr... Was, Kenway, wasn't it? Kenway, that's right. Yeah, it was yeah. Mr. Kenway. Mr. West was a deputy. Mr. West, who I really liked, was yeah. a deputy. You know, he, was, he, he was he was a bit sort of authoritarian, but I quite liked him. But my form teacher, Mr. Dawson, I can remember him coming around to my parents and having a conversation with with us, and him sort of saying like, "Don't leave. You know, you're you're going to regret not having an education or whatever." But of course, that went over my head. And then someone else came round, and I can remember that sticking in. But I left and I went to work in this. Um, factory printing these magazines in Hackney Wick and of course my friends were still at school most of them anyway but I was getting a bit of money then I was going out drinking and you know I I had some sort of uh, so-called friends but they were quite a bit older than me and although I was apprentice I was getting well paid and you know I was going to football matches with these guys and stuff like that and then after about a year I just thought I don't really want to be doing this like you know I was just in this factory and it felt like I had a bit of street cred because of what I was doing but I didn't know how to get out of the job Mm. because I'd left school and you know I just thought what am I going to do and a few of my mates were fly pitching down Roman Road Market and Petticoat Lane I thought no I want to do that but how do I get out of this because I really like the guy that gave me the job and, you know, I was very reflexive and, you know, no no thought sort of really went into what I was doing. I didn't know that at the time. But it's only now when I think back about these things. And I just walked into this office one morning. This guy was sitting there, Johnny. And he said, like, how are you doing? And I said, yeah, I'm good. And I just said to him, I'm not actually doing it. I said, you can stick your job up your ass." <laughs> and it so felt like it was someone else saying it. diplomatic then, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was so weird. Typical and, East and End it, uh, approach to things. Yeah, and he said to me, what, 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 what do you mean? 
you know, because I'd not fallen out of him or there was no indication that I was unhappy. I said, you stick your job up your ass. I've had enough of it. You know, but there was, I don't, I can't even remember there was a context really for me to yeah. say that. And I walked out and it was a bit like the teachers coming round to the house. I, trying think, to, I, I think I remember being in that lesson in, in, in Dankford actually, <laughs> uh, to get out your job. <laughs> Well, I've, I've just had a memory there of someone chucking a blackboard rubber at you, actually, in a, in yeah, a yeah. lesson. Mr. Lyons, I think That's it was. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, uh, but, and then I walked down this road in Atley Wick, and he got in his car, and he was pulling up, saying to me, like, what are you doing? Like, you know, let's have a con- and I couldn't have a conversation with him, you know, and I just left. And it was bizarre. So I was, I was only about 16 then, or 17. But for a few years, before I did the knowledge then, I was just living on the streets, just ducking and diving yeah. and doing what my sort of friends which, and peers were doing. Which was like a, a, a proven sort of way to, to get by then. It yeah. really was, yeah. And it wasn't only a proof, it, it was encouraged. Yeah. Really, you know, because the the focus really was all external. It was about like what you've got, what you're doing. And I can remember, you know, my granddad, I was, you know, I was, I was out on the jump up, you know, jumping up on the back of vans nicking stuff and uh my granddad said to me i loved him dearly but he, he had some you know very kind of old school sort of criminal ideas just said to me well just make sure you're working with the right people it was something like that yeah. you know and then of course i thought i was really grown up and you know it was it was being I, I was given permission to do that and really it's you know it's a miracle that i never ended up in prison um because you know for a few years I just accepted that, you know, my life really was going to be like everyone around me, which was just sort of prison. Yeah, uh, yeah. If, if I was caught, or I would end up, you know, making lots of money and, you know, living some kind of fantasy So, I mean, life. you know, obviously when I, I'm reflecting and I have done in my book and reflect mm. on, uh, we, you know, we become to a certain extent a product of our environments, don't we? Mm. Uh, but, you know, so there's been kids that have come out of that school that have done really well taking a completely different direction and, and yeah. I wonder you know what caused us to you know take the direction we took I mean I, I obviously you know went into the crime I can remember you know I think I, the careers officer you know he, he was stumped when I said you know what you got in villainy and he, he didn't have anything you know <laughs> but uh, you know from from very early on you know it was kind yeah. of like the mindset was, you know, I didn't have that ambition really to go to work. I know I did try to work, you know, I'd done a bit, but I wonder if that comes from kind of, obviously there was other kids in that environment that didn't take that route. So yeah. I wonder if that comes from our own personal kind of family kind of upbringing, our, our conditioning around that kind of stuff. As you say, expectations from family members who... Who, who, who maybe was in that? I can remember yeah. just just to kind of identify that coming out of jail at twenty one, having a, a drink with my my dad at the time. I think you know it was like two o'clock in the morning or something. We'd been out and the pubs were shut, and we managed to get a, a, a bottle of brandy from a restaurant to take away. And uh, and the conversation was, he was like, you know, well, what are you going to do now, son? And I said, well, yeah. I'm, I don't know, Dad. Really, I'm not sure. Yeah. He said, well, I know some people are putting one together. You know, it's a serious one. And uh, and that, that was the kind of conversation. Nothing ever came of yeah. that, but, you know, it was probably just the drink talking, really. But yeah. it was like, you know, if you have a conversation with your kids today and I have a conversation with my kids, it's, uh, it's a completely different conversation. Yeah. And I just wondered if, uh, 
you know, if that was installed in us so deeply, we didn't have another view, we didn't have another perspective of that stuff. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, to go back to what I said, you know, I have to, when, I, when I think about who I am, who you are, where we've come from, we are conditioned from a young age. It wasn't that, you know, I've, when I was growing up, like as a kid, I used to love playing football. I never really got in trouble that much, I don't think, like other kids did. Um, my dad was a cab driver, it was a pretty sort of stable, felt like it, family environment anyway. So it was only when I sort of got into, you know, when I left school and then I started to go out drinking myself with other people, you know, thinking that I was sort of grown up and the objective of life was to sort of, you know, have a good time and, and, and earn lots of money. Um, that I sort of got caught up in that world. But I, I can remember thinking, you know, I'm, I'm maybe going to be a criminal, which I was at that time for a few years. You know, I'm very young. And I can remember thinking, you know, if all else fails, I'll do the knowledge. You know, it wasn't like I wanted to be a cab driver. I wanted to be a publican. But they were the they were the people that I sort of knew who seemed to be doing okay. And then when I got to a point, I think I was I was about 21. And it really felt like then, you know, because there was, you know, the crime was getting more serious. People were going to prison for a long time. And I had this kind of realisation. I just thought, like, I don't really want to spend the rest of my life in prison. I'll do the knowledge. And then I went to sign up. And because I had a few convictions, they said, no, look, you, you can't do it. Come back in a year. And I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll come back in a year. And I was still ducking and diving and stuff. But I'd sort of run out of ideas. And even at 21, things that seemed quite glamorous when I was 17, 18 didn't seem that glamorous anymore. And probably started to realise that there was more to life than just going to prison. Because maybe Albert, my brother, had been you know, in prison by that point. I think he was probably about 18 when he first went to prison. Um, so I eventually did the knowledge. And I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed the knowledge, you know, that I met a couple of guys, who I, one of them I knew from school, Kevin, who I'm still friends with. And we did the knowledge, and I, I, that, I suppose for me, that was my return to education, just mm. being out on a moped. You know, we used to take a bit of weed out, reverse, you know, have, have a pull-up, call over, have a smoke. And I really enjoyed that, and it felt like it gave me some stability. And then I, I got my licence when I was 24, so I was relatively young. Uh, as a cab driver, and there was a few of us who sort of passed that at the same time, and we, you know, we was earning good money. What what was interesting then about the print and driving a cab was that you you could earn decent money and you you had mm. some stability. And when I speak to you know Kevin, who 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 you, who you know, who's who's a cab driver now still, we was earning more or less the same money then that we're earning now. So you know very quickly. You know, I was, you know, furnishing my flat and going on holiday and yeah. doing all sorts of things that I was was trying to do illegally. But I could do it legally without the fear of going to, to prison because that was a big pressure on me. I never realised it till afterwards. And the, t the turning point for me around driving a cab was after doing it for a couple of years, I went travelling for six months around the world. And that opened my mind up in a different way. Right, yeah. And I came back and I just didn't want to be driving a cab. I wanted to go travelling again. I was introduced to, you know, different cultures. And I never really got back into cab driving properly. I felt very unsettled. And then I was drinking a lot, smoking a lot of weed, taking other drugs. And I, and I felt like I just got lost for a few years. Mm. Um, 
and then I, I was I was twenty nine, and I had this awful breakdown. Um, and we was just talking before this podcast about how we carry stuff unconsciously in our mind and in our body, and our stuff comes up. And I just felt really lost. You know, I was in a relationship that wasn't going that well, and I've been with this person, this this girl, for six years. Yeah, there was stuff getting triggered in me, and I just I didn't. All I could see was the rest of my life, driving a cab, was going to buy a house in Woodford. She worked in the city, and it, was, it just wasn't enough for me. I ended up having a, you know, just a few months of just being so depressed, and I had a bit of a, well, so a, bit of a psychosis, I had this psychotic, psychotic episode, and I felt so embarrassed by all of that as well. Because was that down to like smoking weed, or was that part of it? I think that was a part of it because I was smoking a lot of weed, but I think it was just lots of other stuff that I had no awareness of at the time around my nan, Diane, who I was very close to when I grew up. She she died just before I got my badge and she was probably the most secure attachment I had in my life. But she died and I can never really remember grieving or anything. I was just, you know, on on the day, she died on my birthday actually when I was 24. I, I can remember really, you know, I, I was in. I was at this party. She was in St Joseph Hospice, opposite this party in Victoria Park, and I was off my head on coke and drinking and stuff like that. And I can remember my life with my nan's over there, and I could see the window where she was, but I couldn't attach to it. You know, connect mm. with it emotionally. And then, and then she died, and it was that. You know, that Christmas was really, you know, sad. But I wasn't. I wasn't grieving. And on the on the on the night of her funeral, she got buried on um, Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve. Um, myself and Albert went out uh, to this, to, you know, to had a drink, went to this party, and we went out dressed up as Batman and Robin, like around the pubs in Bethnal Green and <laughs> Dan Ackley Road and that. And I was just completely off my head, you know. But I never processed any of this stuff. I thought about it until I had that breakdown because all this stuff started yeah. to come up then. And also the relationships that I had, you know, that, that one with Jane, and I had a long-term relationship when I was younger with this girl called Vivian. You know, both of them I was really in love with, but I didn't love myself at that time, or I didn't. I had just no insight around what it was really to be a healthy, functioning human being. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, there's there's no precedent as far as I can see from growing up in in that area in those families mm-hmm. where where we grew up, and there was all very kind of similar conditioned families, I suppose from. From that area, from mm. kind of their their parents from the war, you know, from yeah. the trauma from the war and growing up, I can't see any any form of anyone really even thinking about self love. No, you know, it, I don't think it was something that was even probably you know no one would have even known what that meant. No, absolutely, and you know, my my, my family is quite different in in its background you know my my dad came to london when he was eight he's he's from uh, limerick in southern ireland and his parents come over his dad was over here in the war he was working as a fireman because he had something wrong with his eyesight my nan was sort of you know working in clothing factories and stuff like that that irish side of the family and they they all seem to be pretty solid and stable and I love my grandparents Irish accents and all that but I had no understanding of their history really it was just like this is my family in Bethnal Green and my mum was an only child and 
her mum, my nan who I was talking about, Nora, she come from Hoxton. My granddad, Harry, come from Islington. He was the youngest of seven brothers. And they grew up in the war. And, you know, there was, there was all of these things that really interest me now, like the mm. transgenerational trauma, mental health. Because, again, you know, when my nan was alive, I never knew it. But it was only afterwards I found out she was diagnosed as being schizophrenic. But I never right. saw her acting strange or anything. But she yeah. used to disappear yeah. sometimes. And it was afterwards that I found out that that was part of my kind of upbringing in history as well. But then I also found out as well that, you know, my my granddad was violent, you know, it was domestic abuse and stuff. So my understanding of schizophrenia and our mental illness is environmental. It's not that there was anything wrong yeah. with her, but it was her trauma. And of course, that gets passed down to us. And, it, you know, that my story from both sides of my family got passed down to me. But in, in my 20s, I had no awareness of any of this. And it wasn't until I started to train to be a therapist that some of these other kind of ideas and memories came back that helped me to understand who I was. Uh, and we was just talking about this before we, we started to record him. I think and it's, yeah, I mean, but it's, it's factual that that stuff was there and that was yeah. fueling, uh, you know, your journey through life as yeah. my gear fueled mine. But yeah. with, with, you know, no insight into what was going on or why it was going on yeah. or, or, you know, what that that whole trajectory was yeah, amazing, and a, isn't it? It is, and be able to talk about it. You know, what, one of the things that really moved me in your book was just the, the stories about relationships, because everything's about relationships. You know, life's about relationships. And there's that situation where you were speaking about being outside this girlfriend's door and then seeing someone else go in there and, and you thinking, you know, I, I want, you know, magical thinking, you know, if she knew that I was outside. And I don't know what it was like for you at the time, how different it would have been from when you was writing the book, but it brought up lots of memories for me because when, when I um, split up with my first um, girlfriend, Vivian, you know, we were together from when I think I was 17 or 18 and she was 15 or 16. It was like a two-year difference, but we were kids. We were very young. And I was 21 when we split up. And she very quickly, you know, we broke up, got together again like young people do. And then she was with this other guy. And then, you know... Uh, my, my my lovely dear friend Danny you know at Stratford who's not with yeah. us anymore he said to me do you know Vivian's pregnant and I can remember that so clearly walking down Bethnal Green Road and we'd not split up that long and um, I said no I didn't know that and it and for me then of course there was no going back with it. and I couldn't tell him how I felt really because yeah. I didn't know but it felt like the floor opened up beneath me I just felt so so despairing mm. you know and 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 the breakup of that relationship was so painful for me at that point. But I had no understanding about attachments and being triggered to, you know, stuff that had happened earlier in my life. And then I moved on from that quite quickly, again, through the help of drinking, smoking weed, partying, not understanding that if you don't process that stuff, at some point it's going to come back to you. And similarly with my second relationship with Jane, who I was with for six years, never processed that properly when we broke up. It was only until I got into recovery and then started having therapy that I started to understand how these things impacted on me. But when I was younger, I, I just didn't have the vocabulary. I didn't have the... And I wasn't around other people as well who had the ability to be able to have a conversation around well, I grief. I don't think you know, we, we ever had those sort of conversations. No. I, I mean, I, did, I certainly didn't, with, no. not even with myself, let alone no. anybody else. Uh, scene that you that you mentioned that brought up that stuff for you you know I think I, I went on to to write about you know having a suicide attempt maybe a little while after that around that around that gear that I just 
couldn't look at. I couldn't, you yeah, know, yeah. every time it came up, I forced it down. The drink and drugs was was part of that system of repressing that, but I I built a quite an effective way to repress that naturally, you know, before that. And mm. uh, and one day, one night, it just it broke through all of my defenses. Yeah. And 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 that was you know that was the point where I I didn't even think about it. I didn't consider it. I just thought I'm not going to be here anymore. I can't yeah. I can't be with this gear. Yeah. And 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 you know attempted to take my own life, and then. Uh, and then never even reflected on that attempt, you know. Yeah. I, you know, I kind of got up the next day, and obviously I was still there, and and that crisis had passed, and and I just carried on with life, and I didn't even look back and think, fucking hell, I tried to kill myself, you know. Yeah. It's just like, but that kind of I think crystallizes for me what what I'm hearing from you is like, you know, there was no precedent for talking about that stuff, even if you knew what was going on, you know. Who do you discuss that with? Yeah, and and you know that's how it was. I think. I think it was, and you know, I just, again, I just mentioned it to you before. I feel like we're going over some of the stuff we just spoke about, but that's okay. You know, it's just what whatever comes up. But I think one of the things that have, has stopped me writing a, a memoir or talking about any of these things publicly before is you know just growing up with this idea of and and it and it. It's not only to do with crime, it's to do with the war, right? You know, that loose tongues cost lives. You know, growing up in the East End, you just don't talk about stuff. And then, you know, being involved in crime and, you know, the worst thing that you could ever be is a grass, right? You just don't talk about anything, you know. Almost worse than being some kind of sexual predator or something, not not to compare the two in any way, but there are just certain things that, you know, if, if, if that... If you if you spoke about anything that could get anyone else in trouble with the police, you know that's a death sentence. Yeah. So and and that you know has always as, as I started to change and to, to think about these things, you know I can see now that you know that that could send you crazy in itself, right? You know because if you haven't got the police to go to, if you're living in a world where there's no law, there's no boundaries. It's really scary and dangerous. But for me, and, and and for you, reading your book and knowing you as well, that was just the world, you know, that we lived in. That was yeah, and 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 funny enough, that belief system that you've you've described there, I mean, that's that was kind of really a real core for me. Mm. And when all the rest of my life was falling apart, I held onto that and thought, I'm staunch, I'm okay. Yeah, you know, despite all the evidence that I wasn't yeah. okay. Yeah, you know, it's funny how, how strong and powerful those systems of belief can become and, and how they play out in our lives and mm. uh the importance of that particular one to me was was just you know so i mean it, it fueled my uh you know my own delusion really that that i was okay i clearly wasn't and i'm sure there's plenty of other people that that you know have that kind of thought process or belief system running through them and and, and it's really interesting and where you was just about to get onto it but you know how did you sort of pick that apart how did you start moving away from that that belief system that was so deeply ingrained well i think i've moved away from it but i know it's still there to yeah. a certain degree and i was just you know i'm interested to hear you uh, how you do this as well because i know for me certainly with the police that there's a guy who lives just up the road from from me really decent lovely guy and he's a senior sort of murder squad detective and i got to know him from walking the dogs around the park and i really you know i really like this guy and we've had you know and, he, and he's a good man you know he he goes out and he tries to solve murders you know and yeah. he's he, and 
and and thank you know thank goodness that you know there are people like him in the world and i've met other sort of police officers um who you know really sort of decent people and it's such a a split in in my psyche it doesn't happen now that used to happen then was like you know the police are the enemy it's this this thing right which was very real and that yeah i don't i don't feel like that at all now my first reaction if i saw something happening wouldn't be to call the police and you know as i hear myself say that it's just like well why wouldn't you and i know it's deep and of, of of course i i would if i had to but i know that i would find it very difficult giving evidence against somebody mm. or and it's like madness right it's just like it's that it's that part of me that is still stuck in the east end and i can remember my you know one, one of my um daughter's uh, friends is a policewoman and when when um, molly was telling me about her friend two two of them actually were trying to be a policewoman i said that's great you know what well, good 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 job on that and she said to me, saying about, you know, I, I don't know if I wouldn't mind doing that. I said, that's great, do it. But there was also a part of me that was just thinking, you don't want to be a policeman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't bring that kid round here anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that I have to just keep working on this stuff. And, and you know, and as a therapist, I, you know, one, one of the things that I really like about therapy, and I think that suits me to the job is, that you know one of one of the fundamental rules about therapy is it's confidential right so i sit and have a conversation with people like we're having a conversation now and i i know that if i was being interrogated like you you could torture me and i wouldn't i wouldn't speak like you you'd have to kill me right yeah yeah no i I understand and i hold that inside of me and i think what makes therapy so special for me is that you know whoever i work with I never talk about them outside of the therapy space, apart from with my supervisor. You know, we have to have supervision. Yeah. You have to be able to offload stuff somewhere. But I had a case um, a while ago where social services had to get involved, and I found that so difficult, you know. And it was the right thing to do. Social mm. services do get involved because, you know, as we say at the beginning of therapy to our clients, you know, everything you say is confidential unless there is a safeguard in you around children, yeah. you know. Yeah. Or if you if you tell me that you're a terrorist you're, or something you're like kill that, kill someone know. or something like yeah. that, yeah, because you, yeah. you have to be responsible. Then you know the law of the land has to has to come into play. Um, but when when I was going through this situation with with my supervisor, it was a, it was a real struggle for me, even though I knew I was doing the right thing. Because mm. I think I think what happens certainly for me, you was you was saying, how do I navigate that stuff today? Mm. And I think it's case of kind of tracing back what serves me and what's ego based mm. and, and what's not ego based and, 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 and the opposite to the ego based stuff for me is is just that intuitive part of me mm. that is is normally very quiet in most people. Mm. But I've managed to, you know, kind of dismantle my ego. It may sound mad in a lot of ways from yeah. from you know, recognising these types of behaviour and, and what is completely out of balance, you know, what's become completely out of balance. And I think those, uh, you know, all of that conditioning from growing up, those belief systems that I developed, you know, it's probably served me at the time and, and they and they was, they was there for a reason at the time. Mm. But as, as I've grown in life and as I've kind of wanted to really find my truth, you know, I've had to dismantle a lot of this stuff mm. 
And I think that's what helps me today to make not only that sort of choice, but other choices. Not that I pick the phone up and drop a dime on someone, but, <laughs> you know, it's not the sort of thing I do. But I'm just saying, you know, the process underneath that, because that's just the behaviour, but there's something that's motivating that. There's yeah. something that's fueling that. Yeah. And I think by, by kind of having the courage and the honesty, you know, we was talking about courage earlier, mm. the honesty and the courage to look at that stuff for what it is mm. and, and recognise it and, and mm. then kind of, you know, does this still serve me and does this mm. still serve me in my life, this belief system? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and recognise that maybe it doesn't. Mm -hmm. But to get that, you know, to get to that belief system, I've got to look at them behaviours. I've got to look at those messages of like, oh, he's a grass, you know, yeah. for instance, yeah. or he's this or he's that or, you know, that stuff that I would yeah. tell myself that would keep that conditioning in place. So it's a case of, I think, you know, starting to remove that conditioning and then finding that, you know, them belief systems are not as solid as, as, as you know, they're not fixed for life. They may be yeah. revisited and I may yeah. have to do this work again and again and again. Yeah, yeah. But it's certainly, it gives me an ability to, to view things with a different perspective, I think, you yeah. know. And to make a different assessment today of, of what the situation is and, yeah. and how it is in my life. And yeah. I've kind of done that by, by that process that I've just explained and, and allowing myself to get to that intuitive part of me, you know, that hasn't got a win or lose scenario. Mm. It's yeah. just, it's intuitive and it will yeah. always tell me, you know, the right thing to do, whether mm. I choose to follow that or not, yeah. you know, yeah. is, a, is a different story, but... You know, I think, you know, I've had to go that deep to get freedom from this stuff, really. Freedom from me. Yeah. You know, it's been a real deep yeah. dive. And I think, you know, there's different levels of that as we go along. But, you know, to get away from those those ideas that really don't serve us anymore, mm. you know, uh, we have to look at what, what what's in place to hold that to hold that fixed in place, you know? Mm. If that makes sense, I don't know. Mm. I'm not a psychotherapist, but I'm yeah. just... No, it all makes perfect sense. And, you know, you don't have to be a psychotherapist to understand these no, things. No, exactly, and, yeah. and I think, you know, what's really um, inspiring about your book and who you are as a person as well is that you have changed, right? You know, so much. You're, you're a different person to what you was when you were younger. And so have I and so have lots of other people that we know. And it does take a huge amount of courage because to let go of certain ideas and people, things that no longer serve us, it is painful. Mm. And I think, you know, a lot of the ideas in, in psychotherapy, in psychology and sociology, because, you know, I studied sociology and history, which, which I really enjoyed. To come back to this idea about, as well, about education and, you know, we, we, we had an education of sorts at Danford and then we have an education on the streets and then we educate ourselves and, you know, we go to school or wherever, but we're always learning. And I, I feel incredibly blessed that I've, you know, my, my breakdown, and you spoke about your suicide attempt, you know, I, I come very close to killing myself. Seriously considered suicide. I planned it out. I knew how I was going to do it. I went round saying goodbye to people, you know. When I, and again, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of years in therapy thinking about this and processing it. But when, whenever I am re reminded of it like I am now, you know, at that point in my life when I was 29, it felt like the only option. Right. It was like, no, I've just got to kill myself. When, when I think of that now, it's just like, you know, if, if I would have killed myself there, I've, I've been happily married, you know, for 
27 years, or been with Lindsay 27 years. You know, my, my oldest daughter, my stepdaughter Molly, she's um, 29. My daughter Grace, uh, 23, two grandchildren now, Molly's, Molly's children. All of these things in my life, you know, I, I, it, it took that, to th that, that kind of low point in my life, that, that despair, and even then, right, because that wasn't the rock bottom, really, because I got out of that by just drinking and drugging again. But when I did actually clean up and change, I've changed in such a way that has enabled me to just have this most amazing life, right? And, you know, you're still here, I'm still, a lot of us have done this, and, and a lot of people haven't. You know, a lot of people have died. Mm. But it does take a lot of courage. But I didn't even, like, when I was first having therapy, I, you know, I didn't understand it, really. I knew I needed help. And, you know, I was trying to, like, what? But what am I getting from this? I'm paying someone to talk to them, right? And and I'm leaving, and I might be feeling good. But like, do I do I need to pay someone to do? I can talk to one of my friends or something, you know. I I couldn't quite get it, but I knew I knew I needed help. I yeah. knew that I had to change. And as as time went on, and I started to to understand therapy more and some of the ideas in in psychotherapy and psychology. I was in my mid thirties when I started to train, but that was partly to do with my wife as well, who I've met. She was an actress, middle-class background. So I started to be um, open to a different way of life. And I was supported by her to, to, to change uh, and to, to get back into education. And we need other people. We can't do it by yeah, ourselves. I was just thinking that, you know, yeah. when you get a different influence coming into your life, it's, uh, yeah. it opens up doors, doesn't it? And yeah, allows us to uh, you know, yeah. maybe get out our own way a bit. Yeah, my, and my first uh, therapist, Mick, and I was in this therapy group and, you know, I went to this treatment centre for a bit. And uh, I was just meeting people who were different from mm. me. And and that's what I needed. It was like a breath of fresh air. And again, I had to fight against that thing of, you know, growing up again with this kind of internal message of, like, who do you think you are? You know, if, if you start to use different words. Yeah. Because as, as, as I was listening to you just now, you know, there's this philosopher, Wittgenstein, who spoke about how we're shaped from language. You know, there's language and then we are shaped by that. And, you know, leaving school at a young age and just being in the pubs around East End, you know, this is not any kind of judgment around, you know, a lot of people that are, who I love and, and sort of grew up in, in that kind of environment. But it, it's so limited because the conversation's always limited. You know, it was always about what you're going to get, what you're going to do. It wasn't about ideas. It wasn't about, you know, things, you know, we, we, we'd be talking... Unless I was of a criminal nature. Yeah, you know, <laughs> we'd be talking about the craze rather than Wittgenstein or Karl Marx or, yeah. or Sigmund Freud or, or something. But once I started to, you know, meet people that seemed to know... Like, I found that so attractive. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Like, yeah. it really, like, it woke me up. It was like a spell had been broken. You know, I, I wasn't talking about, you know, someone there in Oxford. I was talking about the revolution of the working class in Russia or something, you know, and it was just like... And a lot a lot of that, a lot of those revolutionary ideas actually happened in the East End, you know, because yeah. you, you spoke about the Boundary Estate and my grandparents lived there. There was a fervent of, you know, socialist left-wing thinking that happened in that area because of the poverty around there. Yeah, yeah. There was obviously... Uh, Mosley was kind of... Down Watney Street Market, wasn't it? That yeah. big battle down there. Yeah. And 
Yeah, and obviously you you've done history of, as well. You had a history show, didn't you? About yeah. what what kind of just jumping jumping mm. ship a minute? What motivated you to go? You know, into the presentation on TV of, of history of local local history. What kind of motivated that? Well, again, like a lot of things that have happened in my life, really, it was just chance. It was just a bit of synchronicity because what, what had happened, I just before I started to do those history programmes, I was in this documentary about the cab trade and how that came about, I, I used to go out and drive the cab and I'd get so bored, I'd just go for a walk. Like I'd often, I'd be walking while the driver the cab around London because I love London and I love walking. So I was out having this walk one day and I got back in the cab and I turned Radio London on Robert Elms show and there was this woman talking about the history of London and cab driving but I just caught the end of the show right. and sometimes when I was out driving a night of a night I used to phone up there was a phoning program with this guy Big George who used to be on late of a night and um, so I knew the number of the radio program I used to just phone it up or LBC to entertain myself sometimes yeah. there were certain characters on there who um, who I like to listen to so I phoned up you didn't, the, didn't phone up with Sven did you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I phoned up and uh, got in touch with this TV producer and um, met at lunch and, and then we I said I'll be part of this this film that she was making and it was it turned out really good it was like a BBC uh, arena documentary and I think it won some awards and stuff like that but I never, you know, after doing that, I never thought I'd want to get into television. But I really enjoyed it. I like the whole thing of, you know, being with a film crew and stuff. I then, I got this phone call from the carriage office saying that a producer had been in touch with them. They were trying to get in touch with me or something. And for some reason, then this woman mentioned my sister's name, uh, Julie. And, and she just got onto EastEnders at that point. And I thought it was, I thought it was some kind of celebrity producer or something trying to get onto get on to me to that was that was interested in uh in you know in being sort of you know um julie's brother i i just said no like, i'm not interested so but then i got this letter come through from the discovery channel and it was this producer it didn't mention my sister but just saying we'd seen your arena documentary right and we're looking for someone to, to present these history programmes. And we just like the idea of a London cab driver who's got a history of London as well and, and going around in a cab. And I went and met them. And again, I still wasn't sure if I wanted to do it, but I'd, I'd sort of got the appetite for it a little bit through doing this arena documentary. And I thought, I quite like the idea of this, you know. Um, so they, and they, were, they said to me, you know, you've got to do an audition and stuff like that. You know, being sort of talking about the ego, having some bit of an attitude that... <laughs> and it really made my wife sort of, you know, it, it amused my wife at the time because I said, look, I'll, I'll do it, but you've got to pay me for it. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone gets paid in that game, don't they? <laughs> well, apparently you don't if you go for an audition. You right, go, okay, yeah. But I had the security of driving a cab as well. So, yeah. you know, I just thought, look, I don't need it. And I came up with some figure. I think it was 200 quid. Well, which thought, I thought, he's this playing hardball already. We haven't <laughs> met him yet. <laughs> which, you know, I was equated to what I'd be losing in the cab. And they sort of went along with it, and and I got the job, and um, we made this pilot, which you know it got really sort of good viewing figures, and uh, then they wanted to make a series, and anyway, we we ended up doing I think it was about fourteen shows, something like that, a couple of series, and went all around. And it was Europe. called Harry Harris's Wartime London, was it? Or there was there was a few actually. The first one was called Harry Harris's um, 
Secret London. Secret London, yeah. And then we did Harry Harris's Wartime Secrets, and then we did Harry Harris's War Digs, which oh. was about um, digging up. I was with these enthusiasts who would go around digging up Second World War planes. Um, I remember, I watched that one. It was really quite an emotional one, one of them, wasn't it, I think? There was one that yeah. was extraordinary, actually, because the, the what happened in this story was that we... Well, there was a couple that were very emotional. One, one of the stories was extraordinary. We, we dug up this plane in France, and we, we had the kind of research on it. We thought it was a plane that had gone down, and the pilot bailed out, and then he was in some stalag camp, you know, held during the war. Um, survive so it, it was just meant to be this this plane but what happened we started to dig and then we f- started to find things that just seemed incongruent as meant to have been a hurricane it was like this is a spitfire right and then you know the incredible thing was because when you find these planes it's just like you know they've gone into the ground at such a speed that it's just bundles of metal but then you yeah. start to find bits and pieces that sort of you go yeah that's a you know a dial from a cockpit or something like that but we found a, a name, uh, like a dog tag. And it was just a number. But when we, we had sort of records of missing pilots and it was this pilot had been missing and they, his family thought we went down in the channel. Um, Bill Smith, William Smith. So we, we you know, we, we realised that we was onto something quite special here and quickly um, discovered who he was. And the extraordinary, th- there was a number of things that was very extraordinary about this story. One of them was that he still had uh, a couple of sisters and a brother alive who were in Australia because he was part of an, an Australian unit that came over here. And then, so they was like, we just thought he'd disappeared. Like, oh, you know, yeah. So they, they, they could have a proper funeral. And in France, they really take these things um, seriously and it was a big deal. So yeah. that, you know, they was going to have this big military funeral for him and his family's coming over from Australia. But then one of our researchers, Nick, he was going through Pafé film footage and we actually found film of this guy and his, um, his squadron just before they took off from Red Hill. And he actually turns to the camera and someone calls out his name. So we've got this image of him wow. just before he goes off on this ill-fated flight. And, you know, when I talk about that, it still makes sort of, you know, the hairs on my neck stand up because if we wouldn't have done that, dig he would never have been found no, and no. i think you know they've they've passed on there he's, he's surviving brother and sisters but i can remember meeting them you know going over there for the funeral and stuff like that and they was just like you know we can't we'd never be able to sort of thank you enough because you know we, we was able to put our brother at rest you what know? a beautiful thing to uh to yeah. come out of that hey what a yeah, yes, I mean, yeah, it's quite emotional, isn't it? God, it was it yeah. was extraordinary. But there were a number of stories like that, and out of that as well, I became a um, a, a patron of the. There's a a charity in Bethnal Green, Stairway to Heaven charity, and we put up this. Say we, I, I was just a patron. Got got the funding, and the woman who was behind it, Sandra Scottin, um, who was a sexually amazing woman, and and some of the survivors put up this amazing memorial now, just by. Bethnal Green Tube Station, you can see right. if it was there. Because that was the biggest wartime civilian disaster, 173 people died. Yeah. And there was just this tiny plaque there. And in one of my series, I met one of the survivors, this guy called Alf Morris, who's still alive. He lives down not far from here, actually, in Ornchurch. And um, I, I met him, and, you know, we was talking about childhood earlier. 
and as I was talking to him about his experience, he was pulled out of there and it all came back to him. It was so, it was like it was happening, you know, he was very emotional. So I became involved in that as part of doing those programs as well. So although I never wanted to get into television, you know, and it's not, it wasn't something I wanted to do. And I, once that finished, I had no kind of desire to carry on pursuing that career. There were a number of things that came out of that, people that I met, things that have happened that wouldn't have happened unless I did mm. that, you know. And um, it's extraordinary, you know, what happens. What an extraordinary what path to travel, eh? From, yeah. From, from being a black cab driver to kind of getting into that and having those experiences. And and, and what did they did they kind of change you? Because obviously you, you kind of moved in to psychotherapy after that or was you kind of, was that on the horizon for you at the time? Now, what happened with a the therapy kind of journey was that after having therapy... Sorry, I didn't mean to yeah. cut out of that, but I was just yeah, interested yeah. in what was going on within you, you know, when, when you had those experiences. Was it just like, oh, this is a job or...? No, it, cert- it certainly changed me. Uh, yeah, I think everything we do changes us. Yeah. You know, having this conversation will change me. Absolutely, you yeah. know, every, everything changes us all the time because our our brain is being rewired all the time. We're making new connections, letting go of memories, creating new memories, and the, you know, the, 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 to connect that to the therapy kind of journey. When I, after having therapy myself, and then you know, going to fellowship meetings and cleaning up, I didn't, you know, I didn't get into recovery and want to become a therapist. But I was about thirty-five, I think, and. Yeah, I was 35. I've been with Lindsay a few years. I started to do a bit of acting because I just didn't know what to do. I was going to classes and I started to, I, I was offered a, a, a job, uh, a role on the bill. Uh, you know, it was, oh, only, yeah. it, was only, it was only a small role. I think. How, how, did you, how, did you, how did that one land? <laughs> well, <laughs> it was probably to be a villain, not a, not a policeman. Oh, well, okay. It was it was only a small role, but I just started to do this counselling course. And if I decide to do something, I think I'm going to do it. So, you know, I didn't want to just go and do like a counselling course at the local college. And I thought I trained to be a psychotherapist because I started to get interested in it. And I signed up for this course with, you know, the support of Lindsay. Started to do that. And I was doing a bit of acting, driving the cab a little bit. And they and then I was offered this this role. And, and one of my tutors said, look, you know, you've got to decide, do you ever want to do this course? you want to do acting? You know, what do you want to do? And I thought, no, I'll train to be a therapist because there's going to be more stability around right. that. And probably for Lindsay, you know, she'd... I don't know if she liked the idea of being married to an actor or not anyway, but my sister, you know, just got into EastEnders, started to meet a few actors, and I just thought, I like it. And I'd, I'd done a little bit of it. This was before the presenting. Um, but I'll, I'll get back into education. So I stuck with that path. And part of training to be a therapist is you're in therapy yourself. So yeah. I started to process a lot of the stuff that had happened to me in my life and find out who I was. And I was the only person in my group, I think there was probably about 20 of us who had not been to university. You know, it was a, it was a post-grad course. Um, but even something like that, I had no idea what that even meant. So when I went for the interview to be signed up to this... They said to me, look, you know, you can do this foundation course and then we'll take you on board. You, you don't have to have gone to university. But just being in this group, I made some beautiful friends who I'm still friends with now. And, and to tie into what I was saying earlier, I just, I just started to meet so many people from different backgrounds and started to experience myself differently, feel differently. And then when, when I graduated from that, when that finished, I was working in this um, project for two years, working with violent men called the Violence Initiative, which I really 
got a lot from actually it was a, it was an incredible project but that came to an end and then the tv work came along so i started to do that so i put the therapy down for a few years mm. um and i was doing a driving a, you know the, the great thing about having a cab badge you can sort of pick it up and put it down yeah. you know you're self-employed so i was driving the cab a little bit Grace, you know, Grace came along. Lindsay was working. I started to do the TV work, and it did change me. You know, it, it was it was an amazing experience. And then when that came to an end, I wasn't sure again if what I wanted to do. So I, I had this opportunity to um, to study. L- Lindsay was working. She went back into EastEnders for a bit, and I, I said to her, you know, I think I want to do a degree. You know, did you find did you find the, those influences of when you first started studying and started meeting those people? And did you find you was able to sort of shed some of the stuff that you, you'd kind of carried? I mean, was that a, a point where you, you know, because there's new influences, new relationships, yeah. and people are different. I mean, I think the journey, you know, why I'm really interested in your journey is because the man you are today, you know what I mean? Mm. And, and you know, it's been an amazing journey. But yeah. you know, how did you get to the man you are today? And and it's really interesting. You've done all these different things, yeah. and and obviously from from deep sort of belief systems you know how you shed this stuff mm. how you kind of move in and and part of it i think you know it sounded like part of it was the influence of of just these fresh people coming in with different ideas from different backgrounds and it kind of you know maybe in a way gives you permission to to kind of let go of that bit that i don't need to hang on to anymore or was yeah. was there any sense of that, that you know you said you you was changing and you felt that you was changing I was challenged a lot by people who I respected. You know, I, I can remember... Do you know what's so interesting? You know, it's something that I've thought about, but I've not really spoken about before. When I, when I first started to train as a therapist, The Sopranos just came on the television. And, you know, I was blown away by that show. I loved it. And I just thought, you know, there's, there's this guy talking to this therapist and I was having therapy myself. And, um, you know, I never thought of myself as a, as a gangster or anything like that. But I was... I knew that world and I knew people yeah. like that. And I can remember, you know, one, one of my teachers saying something to me. I don't know what it was. I don't know if I was... It wasn't a put down in any way. But she said to me, who do you want to be? Like, you know, what, what do you want from your life? Like, do you want to be a gangster? Or do you want to be a therapist? Do you want to be an actor? You... And I just thought, you know, I don't... I never wanted to be a, a gangster when I was involved in crime. I, ne- I never really wanted to be a cab driver. It just sort of... Or, I must have at some point, but it was just sort of something that I did. Started to do a bit of acting, but I was never really convinced by that. I never really knew what I wanted to do or be. I'd just gone along with things. But then I started to really sort of reflect and take myself seriously. And I thought, I like these people that I'm meeting. I like what they've got. I like what they stand for, what they're doing. And I thought, no, I would, uh, you know, I would like to be a therapist. But what what happened was when I put it down, I started to do the TV stuff and that. At that point, I wasn't really educated enough. I didn't, I was still, you know, I, people are familiar now with, you know, imposter syndrome. I'd be around yeah. people and people seem to have big words and know about things. And I, and I felt like I was just improvising a lot of the time. I was just sort of, you know, I, I'm intelligent. I can think about things and I can listen. But I just, I didn't study therapy enough to really feel like I could be the kind of therapist that I'd want to be. I just, I didn't understand the process, the framework. But The Sopranos really helped me. And um, when I did my sort of graduation, I made this short film when I was training to be a therapist and I used the music and it was just visuals from around the East End and uh, I really enjoyed doing that. And then when I did my degree, I I did my degree in my 40s on the Open University, late 
late 40s actually um, and I started to study first of all I started to study history because I'd done the history programs and I'd always so I'd always I'd, I've been reading history and watching documentaries and I really enjoyed that and then it started to cross over into sociology which I really started to enjoy because I did it it was part time it was a six year uh, degree on the Open University when you do it part time and I started to read about Freud and Marx and that and I thought this is great then uh, and then something clicks. I thought, I've got all of the training in psychotherapy. I've got the diploma. I did, I did that. Now I'm doing this. I can get back into the therapy world. So I went and did this exam then for the BACP um, and started to do a bit of work in a treatment centre and, right. and got back into the work like that. So it's, it's, it's not been a kind of straight path of, you know, with work, I'm going to do this and I want to be that. But I feel like, I sort of found myself through doing all of these things, through doing, you know, whether it was being a printer, cab driver, you know, market trader, mm. someone jumping up on the back of lorries, nicking things, you know, <laughs> whatever it might be, all of these things, you know, then, you know, meeting veterans from the Second World War. I think all of these things and all of the people that I've met have helped me to become the person that I am today. Well, it's a really varied kind of, yeah, interests of, of different things, isn't it? And, yeah, I mean, I was thinking as you was talking about that, I was thinking of my own kind of journey out of out of addiction and out yeah. of all, uh, you know, all that crime and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, it was literally what you said. It was what was in front of me. And I picked up what was in front of me and, yeah. and built a... Uh, you know, successful business and, and that kind of stuff. And, and you know, it was never like, I, I never would have like gone, oh, this is what I want to do. And yeah. actually part of coming out of that was realising that I didn't really know who I was in, in amongst that, you know, yeah. uh, in playing those roles, you know, as yeah. as a dad, I was, I was I knew what I, my role yeah. as a dad and as a, a, an employer, you know, I looked after mm. all those people and uh, as a husband, even though the relationship with the marriage had stopped working, you know, but it was like, you know, I was still playing that role, you know, yeah. still trying to figure out who I was. And, mm. and for me, it was, you know, an internal kind of voice that came really, who am I? You yeah. know, what am I about? Yeah. And when I stripped everything else away, it was like, ah, oh, this is really, really interesting. <laughs> but it sounds like, you know, you've kind of done that through a process of moving forward all the time. I was in, the, I was still, uh, you know, I was running. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I was still running from me, you know, throughout all of that building, that business up and that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't until I stopped and took stock that I really got to the measure of, you know, my potential really, I think. Yeah. yeah. But I, a memory that's just come back to me, I don't know if you remember it, when you had an office just near um, Exmouth Market. Yeah, that's right, Rosebury Avenue. Yeah. Rosebury Avenue. And I was driving the cab, I think, one day. I might have been doing the knowledge. And I pulled up, I saw you going in there and we had a brief conversation. And then when I was reading your book, you know, you spoke about how, you know, working in the bakery and then... And I can remember when you yeah. were working in the bakery as well. I don't know why, but I can remember coming around your flat one day in um, Haberdasher Street. Yeah. I don't know if I was with yeah. Albert or whatever. And you, you, was, you, was, talk, you'd, you was early in recovery as well. Because you cleaned up quite young. I did, yeah. You know, yeah. and other people that I, I knew that had cleaned up. And it was such a, like, it was a, I didn't know anything about that then apart from trying to help Albert to get into recovery. Um, but I can remember, you know, you going into the office and telling me you've got this office and that. And I was really impressed by all of that. And then reading your story, you spoke about, you know, getting the contract of, was it Spa or 
it was at the supermarket. Shepherd's, yeah. Shepherd's right. Foods, yeah. Yeah, Shepherd's Foods, right, yeah. or something. But to actually have the, the, you know, the courage and the insight to go, yeah, well, I could do this. And, you know, you was making it up as you was going along. Like, oh, absolutely, How do yeah. I price this? Yeah. But not being daunted by any of that. You know, just going, yeah, I'll have a go. And then seeing yeah. what happens. And I think so much of life is like that. You know, I think we do just, you know, if we can, we have a go at things. And if they don't work out, they don't work out. But to have people around us as well who can go, yeah, you know, do it. Mm. Have a go at that. Whatever it might be. is yeah. is so important. That imposter syndrome that you that you mentioned, you know, I think I, I wrote about. Uh, I'm sure, yeah, I did write about it in the book, kind of being in in you know in an environment with all successful business people, and I felt this quite often. You know, I'd be in, in meetings somewhere up the city in a boardroom somewhere, dressed in a suit, and they was all dressed in suits, and yeah. we'd be negotiating something or working through something, and I, you know, I just felt like I was standing there in my overalls with a bucket. You know what I mean? It was like, but then still stepping up still yeah. stepping up and engaging in that process and yeah. and pushing through that 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 self uh belief you know yeah. i suppose and a self-esteem thing you know yeah. it come from a low yeah. a low self-esteem or uh, an idea that you know people like me are not meant to be in places like this you know yeah but it's interesting isn't it and you must have you must have felt that obviously you, you've said that you felt that with with those people but I think what's what really pushed you through it. What what got you through it? I think what got me through it was was my ego, probably a lot yeah. of the time, and and having some humility and having people, you know, especially when I was studying to be a therapist, I've made some you know really good friends there who I'm still, who I'm still friends with who come from a very different background to me, but really helped me to understand that you know I've got as much right as anyone else to be a therapist. You know, it doesn't matter about like the education and the background, all of that is in the past, right? You know, we can, you can keep learning. I think what sometimes, you know, it, it, what something that interests me is accents. Like, you know, we've both got an East End accent. Yeah. And I don't hear it myself. I know I have, you know. And when I, when I, when I did the TV documentary, you know, a lot of people say it's very difficult to watch yourself on TV. Like, you know, my wife doesn't watch herself when she does things. And um, I, I couldn't really watch those documentaries. I don't think I've seen them all. I've seen bits of them and that because I, I get so judgmental around my accent. And, uh, you know, that's really sad, really, because it's mm. like, you know, it, it should be something I'm proud of. And I'm proud of it, but I was proud doing it. It's like when I look at myself, I, I get really critical and judgmental in a way that I would never with anybody else. You know, I hear people's accents. I don't, I try not to judge people. But of course, we judge people all the time. You can't help it. Yeah. And I think there is, there's something in me that has enabled me to, to carry on, push through and I'm proud, I'm proud of where I come from. You know, I don't want to change how I sound or anything. But there, there, is, there must be something in me still that is about class. You know, class, I'm really interested in social class, right? Because we, like, there's no reason why people from our background, well, there are lots of reasons, actually, that keep us stuck. But a lot of it is to do with power and structures that are not only to do with accent and education, but other things as well that keep us in our place. Thank you for listening to the Cockney Guide to Enlightenment with me, Stephen Rosen. Thanks for your time and please don't forget to share this episode with friends. Uh, press the follow button and you can connect with me at Cockney Profit on social media. It's been great to have your company. Take care and I look forward to you joining us for the next enlightening conversation. Cheers.